Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference, one word at a time. Now here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. And welcome everybody. Welcome, welcome. Well, joining me today, we have not one, not two, but three New York Times and USA bestselling authors who've won many accolades and awards between them and thrilled readers with their own unique storytelling skills. Coming up around 1225, Kristen Higgins, whose uh, publisher, this is an interesting story, her publisher sent her on a pre-publication tour. (laughs) So we'll find out more about that later. We end today's show with returning guest Laurie Foster, who's got more than 100 titles to her name. She's a recipient of the prestigious RT Book Reviews Career Achievement Award for all that hard work and has just released the first book in a brand new series that's, uh, I think, a little different to her usual work. We'll find out more. And coming up first, I am delighted to welcome back Christina McMorris. I can't wait to hear more about the history behind her book. A fascinating story as always. So uh, let's dive in here. And um, let me tell you a little bit about uh, Christina. Uh, she, she's been on the show before, got her book here. It's called Sold on a Monday. And um, it started with a picture, but I'm going to let Christina tell us all about that. And uh, you might be familiar with her from last time we talked from some of her books. She's a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author. Her novels have garnered more than 20 national literary awards and include Letters from Home, uh, Bridge of Scarlet Leaves, The Pieces We Keep and The Edge of Lost and a whole bunch of more, more interesting stuff. So, Christina McMorris, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure, and so um, I'm very pleased. Uh, is this book this book comes out tomorrow? So I want to make that clear, right? Is that has that changed? It's still coming out. No, it's tomorrow. We're tomorrow. counting down the hours here. I have my paper bag ready right next to me to start breathing into. <laughs> uh, well, that's that's always fun, right? <laughs> oh, yes, fun is the word. <laughs> and we're excited. Our house is very excited about it. Yeah. So let's begin with that story, and um, I I wanted to get the book right in front of me, so I apologize for that fiddling around while I was introducing you there, but I wanted the book right in front of me while we talked about this, Um, because the picture of your book captures, uh, I mean, it captures a great uh, mood there, I think, you want to know more, but this whole book was sparked by a whole other picture and that was a picture that uh, was taken or printed or it was published at the time, 1948. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you came across that picture, what it meant to you, and why it sparked a story idea for you. Absolutely, yeah. Anybody who, is, who has seen that photograph, which I'm sure you have too, it's in the author's note as well, is, is pretty uh, taken aback by it. it. It's a photo of four beautiful children who are sitting on a stoop in Chicago, and a mo- their mother is turned away from the camera in the background. It looks like she is shielding her face. And there is a sign next to the kids that says, Four Children for Sale, Inquire Within. And as a mother myself of two young boys, of course, it, it, it struck me hard. And you think immediately that it must be set during the Great Depression. It seems to be that sort of photo. It's black and white. And uh, knowing that the country went through so many hardships during that time, it seems to fit. I was surprised to find out it was taken in 1948, 
and that the sign, which is where my story ended up kind of getting a spark of an idea, what was so interesting about the sign is that it's so perfectly painted. I did not notice that until until months later when that photo just kept haunting me. And I ended up going online and reading a follow-up article in the Northwest Indiana Times, the New York Post, about this family and about these kids who are now adults and some of them have passed away and telling their stories of what really happened. And there was one line in there that said, some family members claim the photo was staged. Now, when I researched more about it, came to find out that a year after that photo was taken, that the one of the girls in the photo who I become friends with, her name is Rayanne, she ended up, she was sold for $2, she claims, for her mother to have bingo money. Which $2. is exactly the, the opposite of what you would think from a photo like that. Wow. And that her brother started crying because he didn't want to lose his sister. And this farmer and uh, husband and his wife said, fine, we'll take him too. And they ended up taking the, the brother for free, and they worked as farm labor. It, it's like I, you, you feel speechless after hearing something like <laughs> you know, that, right? I process that one. I gave you a lot, and it really is. It, I took quite a bit of time myself to process that that story and and to find out the the real story what happened behind the photo but apparently from the photo it went what we call today viral at the time and it went into so many newspapers around the country because it was so striking and people ended up uh, donating money and job offers and a home for the children and the mother apparently according to Rayanne turned them all down so it's a really interesting story in itself but mine of course which I'm sure we'll talk about you know my, mine is a novel and it is completely fictional so it is just sparked by the idea of that but i would i would definitely not presume to tell their story right 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 but it's amazing where stories come from and how something can just sit with you in your mind enough that you went to do more research on this and and figure it out in fact i think i remember reading somewhere that you said you wouldn't have actually written this book sold on a monday if it hadn't been for the urging of friends is that true that is true because for the longest time i kept that photo kept book, a bookmarked it on my computer and kept going back to it because it just it bothered me so much. As a mom, I kept thinking, I understand giving away the children if it was for their betterment, but to, to, you know for their safety and their health, et cetera. But to actually ask for money in return really bothered me. And so I kept kind of brainstorming that idea of what would what would a mother do that was a compassionate reason to do something like that? And it was it was only from the urging, like you said, of author friends who said, "Chris, you cannot let this go. This is a bestseller." And we laughed about the fact that it was probably so heartbreaking that it would be an Oprah pick, you know. And we we giggled about that. And it was only until I figured out a way to tell the story um, that was from a different point of view, that was from a reporter's point of view, that I felt that I was bringing also something fresh to the table. Christina Baker Klein is a good friend of mine who wrote uh, *The Orphan Train*, which, as you know, is an amazing story. And I didn't feel like I could tell, the, I didn't want to tell an orphan train too. I felt she'd already done it so well, I wanted to tell it in a different way. And that's what I ended up, I hopefully did. Okay, well, great. Yes, you're getting um, the people who've had access to the book already to look at it are, are really thrilled with it uh, from what I've read uh, from reviews, free reviews. So um, let's talk about your book and how you formulated your story for this. Absolutely. So like I said, when I saw that line about the reporter, I thought, well, isn't that an interesting take on it? What if a reporter had taken a photo of these two children instead on a farmhouse porch, and I set them in rural Pennsylvania, since I'm familiar with that area. They still live around there. And 
he ends up just happening across these two kids with a sign that says two children for sale. He takes a photo not meant for publication uh, just because he's so taken aback by, by the scene, and yet it leads to his big break, nothing that he ever plans on, and it catapults his career to the New York uh, Herald Tribune. And it's wonderful in his life, everything that he's dreamed of, and yet what he finds out at some point is that there's devastating consequences for everyone involved. And there is a photo mishap somewhere in there that he ends up having to recreate a scene that he doesn't plan on. Mm. So you always put, well, I don't say always because I haven't read all of your books, but I know the last time we talked there were real, uh, there were characters in the book that were based on real people. And this time uh, Nellie Bly makes, uh, <laughs> was inspired one of your characters so I wasn't actually familiar with Nellie Bly not growing up here, but um, tell us about that, if you would. Sure. And so Nellie Bly is actually the character in the story. I don't write her. She never appears in the story, but she's mentioned quite a bit. And, and that is because there is a female uh, co-worker at the newspaper who is friends with a reporter, and she is a secretary to the edit- editor-in-chief, and yet her dream at the time is to be a reporter. And she's so limited as a woman at the time as to what she's, they, they believe she's capable of and what her place is. And so she has that struggle as well. And her dream is to become the next Nellie Bly. I mean, you can't write, I think, a, a newsroom story of the 1930s without mentioning Nellie Bly, especially for a female who wants to be a reporter. And so she is mentioned quite a bit as far as being kind of her, her dream of being somebody like that. Because of my research of the New York Herald Tribune and these real newspapers that were around at the time that my characters weren't at, I did need to research quite a bit of some of these characters who really were their editors at the time, the city editors, and wanting to use those real people, but also being very careful about how often I use them in the story and that I'm, I'm not writing biographical fiction. You know, it is historical fiction, and so I want to be fair that I, I don't right. presume a lot of what they would, they would say in certain situations. Right. How, so how do you decide what to put in, what to put out? Uh, is that based on where your other characters are going? What kind of guidelines do you use? As far as with the real people at the time? Yeah. Yeah, so what I did is, you know, they, they're mentioned quite a bit, and then I keep the scenes pretty limited with the people who were really real at the time. That, But I believe it, it would seem silly, I guess, to make up someone that was the city editor who real, when there really was one, and there was a lot of information about him. So some of the characters, if there's a lot out there that's written about them, uh, then I feel like I'm a little safer in being able to portray them as a lot of other people had that weren't with them. I had firsthand knowledge. Right, right. And, and you've also had first-hand knowledge of this yourself because I remember from last time we talked, you uh, were working in the media at a very young age. Was it eight, nine, nine years old? I was, yes. So I started hosting a kids' TV show for a local ABC affiliate in Portland, Oregon when I was nine and uh, worked at that show for about five, six years. I think it was a six-year stint. And because of it, we would film on Monday night, or I'm sorry, Monday night I would get the script, Tuesday I would memorize it, and Wednesday I would shoot it. And on Wednesday <laughs> evenings, we would get the studio between the 6 o'clock and the 11 o'clock news. So we had a very specific window of time that we had the studio. And we would shoot it, and right after, because our time was limited, I had to stay and make sure that there was nothing that needed reshot. And so I would hang out in the newsroom and became very good friends with the meteorologist. And it was it seemed very high-tech to me at the time that we got to move the clouds around on his screen. <laughs> so that is, I definitely grew up in that room. 
<laughs> yeah, I'd forgotten how we used to move clouds around <laughs> on the screen. I thought that was pretty neat at the time, for yeah. sure, especially for a nine-year-old. Yes, it was very ambitious, very ambitious. <laughs> um, so let's talk about this because I think this is lovely. I read that you began writing about the 30s and 40s, and of course this book begins in, in the 30s, um, after discovering a collection of your grandparents' uh, World War II courtship letters. That's right. Yes, I did. I was creating a family cookbook as a Christmas present for the grandchildren, which I know a lot of families do. And I put in my grandmother's favorite recipes she had collected and created over decades. And when I sat down with her, I thought as a surprise for everyone, I would kind of sneak in a biographical section into the cookbook about my grandmother and some neat photos from her growing up as an Iowa farm girl. And she ended up sharing with me that she and my late grandfather had only dated twice during World War II, exchanged letters the entire time. He came home on leave, and they were married for 50 years until he passed away. (laughs) And then she said, would you like to see the letters? So that ended up changing. I didn't know at the time, but the course of my life. So she ended up pulling them out, and we spent the afternoon poring over these yellow wrinkled pages that were written by a 19-year-old sailor who didn't know if he'd be coming home tomorrow. And when I left her house, I thought, this would make a really good movie, you know. But instead, I ended up sitting down soon after and writing it as a novel. And so that's how it changed the course of your life. It did. It did. I had no idea. I thought that I would write this Cyrano de Bergerac-style story during World War II, where you have a different girl writing back, and the soldier doesn't know who he's in love with. And I thought, well, this would make a, a neat story to pass along to my kids. And we would make copies at the local coffee shop and... You know, kind of see what I could do with it. But otherwise, they would all get a copy and their grandchildren would get a copy. <laughs> and then I would go on with my life. And next thing you knew, I sold it to New York with a two-book contract. And I had then suddenly had that small panic of, oh, my goodness, I wasn't planning to sell one book, let alone two. <laughs> so now I need to come up with something else. And luckily, I keep coming across these amazing nuggets of history that you think, how did I not know this? People need to know this. Mm. And that's what's happened. Well, I, I love that story, and I love that that's a great segue into what I wanted to talk about next, because you always have the most interesting facts in your book. And um, I love this one. Um, maybe it's because of the current political situation. Yeah. I don't know. But um, one of the things that you weaved in, uh, you weave all these facts into the book, obviously, when you're doing your, your research and your storytelling. I did not know that Al Capone actually created soup kitchens to improve <laughs> his public image. Um, so forget the murders he created yes. soup kitchens. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, I, I thought that was fascinating. When you come across a, a fact like that, you think, oh, my goodness, I've got to work this into the book somewhere. And it, it fit perfectly because what you're talking about is perception in news and perception to the public. And essentially, you know, the mobsters at the time, very much when I read the successful ones, as brutal and ruthless as they were, um, they were also businessmen. A lot of them were very savvy businessmen to become that successful. It doesn't mean that we should copy that by any means today, but uh, but that is fascinating to me. And so the fact that he cared about his perception to the public after the Valentine's Day massacre, he felt that, from what I understand, he felt that his perception had gone down in the public where they were seen a bit as celebrities before that. And so he ended up opening soup kitchens or bread lines in order to help the community to kind of help boost that up. Mm, interesting. So in, in Sold on a Mandate, do you have a favorite character? 
oh goodness, do I have a favorite child? Let me see. <laughs> I know. I I always ask that question, but and and I yeah. get similar kind of answers on that. But of yeah. course, no. I'll be honest. Hey, there's always a favorite child, right? No. <laughs> so, uh, just my kids are hidden away in another room, so they can't hear. I'll, I'll, when we're off air, I'll tell you which one of them I like more. Too. <laughs> today, right? Today. Yeah. yeah. Over wine, we'll we'll tell the truth. Um, no, in my story, I think that you know I've got a couple. Uh, little kids, and one of them is a, a little girl, and she, you know, a little girl like that who is spunky and a spitfire uh, and is smart and savvy, and yet she's a survivor and is not one that cries easily, but she really kind of pulls up her bootstraps. She's, she's probably my favorite. Mm. Well, I absolutely love the cover of this. We talk about this all the time. You shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but I do love the <laughs> it's cover hard on with it. my book, isn't it? I lucked out. I did. It's It's stunning. Yeah. So uh, I've heard you uh, joke that you view your book as literary Advil. What does that mean? I do, I do. I like to think of my stories because they're historical fiction, that the outside is you get the sugar coating of a story on the outside, and hopefully you don't realize how much good stuff in history and facts that you're getting until the book is over. And then hopefully readers look back and think, oh, you know, I actually learned a lot. Mm -hmm. So a um, couple of questions that I'm going to ask all of our uh, guests today. And um, I know you, you've had some PR experience, I think, before you started writing, I believe. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I, did. I was a PR director for about 12 years. Yeah. So I'm assuming that helped you a lot when you started uh, doing this. But one of the questions is because I run into people all the time who say they want to write a book, but they don't know how to market it. So what's what's the best tip you can give on promoting yourself and your work, connecting with your audience? What what works for you? Because there are generalities around, but then everybody has their own personality and own audience. So what works best for you? Absolutely. Well, I think the biggest thing is that you don't let it consume all of your time um, and, and all of your money. It's really easy to try to, I think, buy big packages and things that sound like um, they will reach a lot of people at once. And I think the most important thing is to stay within your budget and to, and to go after very targeted um, ways of reaching readers that are really your audience. So there's, you know, I think social media is a great way to reach people as well, but I think it's also, um, you know, you think of social media as a cocktail party. And I think you have to be careful <laughs> that you don't want to be that person that's at the cocktail party pulling out your book and going, have you seen my book? Have you seen my book? Have you seen my book? Um, and so instead, you know, to kind of do it in, in doses and that, you know, that you want to share some fun news with friends, but, but you don't want to be the human infomercial is what I like to tell debut authors when they're asking for advice. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, I was at a funeral once or not a funeral um, memorial and somebody brought out their business cards and their books and it was mm-hmm. one of their parents that had just died to start promoting their book. And I was like, OK. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think you and I should get together and we could write a book of what not to do. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> just as, just as helpful as things to do. So, yeah, so, I think that reaching readers is reaching friends and reading peop- and reaching people that you think that would connect and, and trying to pick and choose the things that you think will actually move the sales needle or are personally fulfilling. And I think my husband gave me great advice about that years ago. And he said, you know, if not everything is going to move the needle. He's a marketing whiz. And so he said, not everything's going to move the needle. He said, but if there's something that's personally fulfilling, by going to speak to book clubs that you get to connect with your readers firsthand and enjoy uh, an evening of food and wine and laughter, then do it. He said, you know, even if it doesn't mean an enormous amount of sales, a lot of this has also got to be personally fulfilling. Right, right, right. And so the second question I'm going to ask everyone today uh, is what's your least favorite part of the publishing or writing process? Because it's changed so much now. Um, What's your least favorite part? 
Well, I would say my least favorite part has probably always been the same, and except for that very first book that you're just so passionate about because you have no critics and you think every word you write is brilliant because you haven't shared it with anyone yet. And that is that my my first draft is always writing the because writing the first draft is always hard for me in that it's a blank page, and I tend to edit very heavily as I go, and so writing that is always difficult for me and. Um, but when I get to go back and edit and play with it, the sentences, that's when I think, okay, this is why I do this. I really do love this. And I do love the marketing, the promotion, and reaching out to readers and seeing it touch people on the other side, and that remains the same. Yeah, and so. that that comes through. Well, Christina McMorris, it's always such a pleasure to talk with you. The book is called Sold on a Monday, um, beautifully written, as always. And I know listeners can find out more about you at ChristinaMcMorris.com. What do you want to leave them with today? Leave them with that. I hope that they enjoy the story and will check out my others. The other two things I'll mention briefly on my website is that I do have a 50-stop, I know I'm insane, 50-stop tour that kicks off (laughs) this week. I would encourage people to come see me before my brain turns to tapioca. So, So they can find that schedule on my website. I'm hitting about 14 states. And there's also some really great book club gifts and offerings that are on my website right now for a limited time. So I hope they check that out. All right. And so do you know off the top of your head if you're up in the Washington area? I am. I will be there tomorrow night, actually, at Third Place Books at Lake Forest okay. with my friend Tammy Greenwood, who also wrote Rust and Stardust. And we're going to have a great discussion. Okay. All right. Christina McMorris, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was so nice to chat with you again. And you too. <laughs> And uh, the book, again, Sold on a Monday, comes out tomorrow. Don't forget, comes out tomorrow. Sold on a Monday by Christina McMorris. And uh, all that good stuff's up on her website, christinamcmorris.com. All right, please stay with us. We will be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do, but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800-495-7617. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Laughter can help heal illness, emotions, and relationships. Jeopardy! champion and New York Times bestselling author Ken Jennings joins us to share a peek into the history of humor with Planet Funny. We'll also look at how to develop the right idea at the right time and the science behind creativity and the creative curve with Alan Gannett. Catch up on past shows at conversationslive.net and chat with Vicki on Twitter at Vicki St. Clair. Be sure to tune in every Monday at noon and Fridays at 6 a.m. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425-269-4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. 
call 425-269-4772. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to help you live well, live strong. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. Well, as promised, we have uh, three great New York Times and USA uh, and award-winning authors with us today. And coming up now, we're talking with Kristen Higgins. She's the New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of 18 novels, which have been translated into more than two dozen languages and sold millions of copies worldwide. Uh, She's won many awards and accolades and is a six-time nominee for the Kirkus Prize best work of fiction and uh, her new book is called good luck with that Kristen Higgins welcome thank you so much well it's a pleasure having you here and uh, lots to talk about here but one of the things that um, I was interested to see was that before your book was even published uh, Berkeley who published your book sent you on a pre-publication tour what was what was going on there well I thought it was a brilliant idea um book is about something that I think every woman can relate to, and that is the tie between body image and self-esteem. And, you know, we live in America, and in no other country is there such an obsession with size and beauty and also with food and eating. So um, we wanted to kind of gauge readers' reactions to the book and get the discussion starting. So we went, I think, to five different cities and talked to book clubs associated with bookstores to kind of get the reaction um, to the book and and start talking about how much impact uh, size has on your typical woman. And so what was it that made you want to write about this? I know you often write about women's uh, issues and friendships and um, the struggles that we have in, internally. Why did you want to do this? Actually, what one author actually wrote, um, she thinks it was by uh, Susan Elizabeth Phillips, a number one New York Times bestselling author, said, uh, this is an important and brave book in a time when any writer who wishes to explore these issues risks being called out for fat shaming, which is, as she says, a subtle form of censorship. So what made you want to tackle this? Well, I felt like in my previous books, um, I have discussed size as an issue um, relating to body image, whether it's being too tall or thinking that you're you know, overweight or um, uh, being too thin and too small. And, and I felt like the time had come where I really had to write about the impact society has on making women feel somehow wrong and the struggle that most of us go through to get to a place of self-acceptance and really focusing on the more important things in life. Um, so, yeah, it was, um, you know, it was a a difficult subject to write about. It has had a very emotional response from readers um, that I would say is, you know, overwhelmingly positive. And, um, you know, I think that it's just a book whose time has come. Right, right. And I've heard people say over and over again uh, about your work, Kristen, that you are one of the most uh, 
vulnerable writers out there, you write very openly with vulnerability. Do you think that's why you can talk about subjects that others might shy away from or feel sensitive about? I I guess I didn't really think about it. I mean, I've always been a very emotionally honest writer from my very first book onward. And I think that that's what struck a chord with, with readers is that I would have acknowledge and admit to things that a lot of us have been through and thought. And that's the kind of response that Good Luck With That is getting, that, you know, people are saying, I can't believe you know about this, that you've thought this too, or it was like you were in my head or in my closet, (laughs) you know. Um, And, um, yeah, I think, you know, that putting it out there, that that self-acceptance is a journey, and it's So let's talk about the three main characters in uh, Good Luck With That. Um, Emerson, Georgia, and Marley, and they they met at a uh, weight loss camp as teens, teens, and they've been fast friends ever since. So tell us a little bit about your characters, how they come sure. together. Well, in the very beginning of the book, um, Emerson calls Georgia and Marley to her hospital room, um, and they are stunned to see that in the five years since they saw her in person last, she has gained a tremendous amount of weight, has become housebound, and is extremely ill from complications related to obesity. Uh, she's a true food addict, and like any kind of addiction, it's, it's very difficult to witness the ravages of, of an addiction. And Emerson is dying, and um, Georgia and Marley are you know, terrified and, and and distressed, of course, because they've been friends for 18 years. Um, and Emerson does die the next day, um, but not before giving them this list of the things that they had thought they'd do uh, when they were adults. But they made this list on the last day of their weight loss camp, things we'll do when we're skinny. And like a lot of teenage girls, it's sort of this, this list of very naive and, and sometimes sweet, innocent, benchmarks that they think will mark their life, like, you know, dressing a certain way or being taken home to meet your boyfriend's parents, that kind of thing. Right, right. Um, Georgia is one of those women who has yo-yo dieted all her life. She had a very beautiful and very thin mother who was constantly obsessing with her weight and her size as a measure of value. And she grew up feeling very wrong in her body. Um, and has always kind of been unclear on where she is. Is she too fat? Is she, has she lost enough weight? Is she somewhere in between? And it's always been an issue for her in feeling confident about herself. Because if you grow up in a household like that, of course you're going to be thinking about it. Um, Marley, on the other hand, grew up very adored and loved in this big Italian family. And her size was celebrated because she was a twin, and her twin dies. Uh, when they're four years old, and she's a frail little kid. And so Marley, um, being strong and sturdy and having a great appetite, that's something that her parents encourage. Mm -hmm. So she has a very different take on herself. I think it's easier for her to find self-acceptance because she was so loved all her life. Um, But both women have to acknowledge they've always wanted to be a certain size. And it's not that they thought life would start when they were thin, but that life would be better somehow. 
Right, right. That they're not that feeling of not enough with without this perfection in front of mm-hmm. them. And so um, when when Emerson dies, um, which isn't really a spoiler because it does happen at the beginning of the book, as you say, um, she um, she ha- she leaves that final wish for her best friends to to conquer the fears they still carry as adults. Um, how did you? How did you get into the characters' heads to weave through that? It, it's a, it's one thing. Um, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought here, but I had a question around how you take them from dealing with this death because when we have any kind of situation that puts us in uh, a life-changing situation like this, whether it's a death or a divorce or a, a you know severe loss, loss of a job, any one of those things can uh, send us either off the cliff or <laughs> sent us in a whole new good direction. Right. I, I think for for Marley and Georgia, they have each other. Um, their friendship is very powerful. And, um, you know, this is a love story in terms of the women loving themselves, appreciating themselves, but also taking care of each other and um, helping each other through those rough parts of life when you admit you're your insecurities and your fears, and and you really talk about the things that happened to you in the past. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely a story of friendship. Um, the women decide we're going to do these things, but but it's not weight contingent. We're not going to lose any weight to do it. Right. Um, it's more about having the confidence to go for what we want and not not letting ourselves be defined by those negative voices that have told us we're too big. Right, right. And I have to share this because we haven't shared this yet, but there's also a lot of humor in the book. Yes. You're, you're actually known. Didn't you start out as a romantic uh, comedy writer? Yes, I did. And all my books, I think, have um, both the laughter and tears components um, because they're, they're the same side, or different sides of the same coin, rather. Right. You, know, you, you laugh with a character because you love them. You cry with a character because you love them. Right, right. And... Um, and I think a book without humor would be really hard for me to write. Right. It, it just comes naturally to me. Right. So uh, two questions I'm asking everyone today. Um, what's the best tip you give on you can give on promoting yourself and your work, connecting with your audience? What works best for you, Kristen Higgins? I think um, that's a great question. I think it's um, an authenticity with my readers. You know, I'm very uh, open, very, as you say, vulnerable with them. I, I, um, I reveal a lot about my life and family um, in, in my blogs and pieces that I write um, on social media. And there's, a, there's a, I think, an authenticity that my readers recognize, that I am who I seem. And right. um, my books are, um, they always come from a, a loving place. interaction that I have with my readers has been the best thing that I've done, even though it wasn't really like a decision. <laughs> was, right, you know, right. Uh, it's just like, being, being you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so what's, the second one is what's, what's your least favorite part of the publishing or writing process? Because it has changed so much, uh, you know, over the years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, let's see. I've been really lucky. I'm, I'm only traditionally published, so I've never had to... Um, branch out on my own as an independent uh, publisher. But I would say um, I think the hardest 
hardest part of publishing is always trying to get the, the right cover, the cover that reflects the spirit and tone of the book and, um, you know, has some metaphorical meaning. Right, right. So what do you hope listeners will take away or what do you want them to take away from our conversation today? Your book is uh, Good Luck With That. What do you want them to know that we haven't talked about? I want them to to really um, see that happiness in life can only start from yourself and that right now exactly where you are in life, whether you know it's your your career or your romantic status or your health or your size, right now you are valuable and precious and you deserve to be treated well by yourself starting right there, and by everyone else in your life, too. Awesome. Kristen Higgins, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you, Vicki. And you can find out more about Kristen Higgins uh, at uh, kristenhiggins.com. And Kristen is with, with an A, uh, K-R-I-S-T-A-N, higgins.com. And please stay with us. We will take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by Laurie Foster. You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Let's see if I, I guess that, (sighs) this just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing, writing it another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need. Whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. Oh, yeah, that could work. Did you know that capsizing boats and people falling overboard account for over 70% of boating fatalities? 80% of those fatalities occur on boats under 26 feet and on boats with operators who've had no formal boating instruction. 50% of all boating accidents involve alcohol. Be smart this summer. Know who you're boating with. Wear a Coast Guard-approved life jacket and don't drink and boat. This message is brought to you by supporters of Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair and the JMB Group, who wish you safe boating fun. This is Martha Norwalk, every Sunday morning beginning at 9 a.m. Thanks in part to Darcy Pariso and Stacy Lewis, we cover the world of animals. This week, September 2nd, it's a shelter rescue sanctuary and anything that helps our Animal Friends Sunday. We'll check in with our most in need of rescue, Missy's Rescue and Animal Talk on Lake City Way, and we'll follow up with Seattle Dogs Homeless Program and more. So hope you can join us on Martha Norwalk's Animal World Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. 
Do you love wildlife? Then make a real difference by helping Paws care for sick and injured wild animals. Volunteers help feed and clean the animals until they are well enough to return to the wild. Sign up today and help save a wild life. No experience necessary. All training is provided. Visit paws.org or call 425-787-2500. Thanks for listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. Listen to podcasts of past shows at conversationslive.net. Broaden your horizons. You'll be amazed at all the topics we cover on Alternative Talk 1150. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And uh, my next guest is Laurie Foster, uh, again, a New York Times bestselling author, USA Today, publishers weekly bestselling author. She's got books from a variety of publishers, including Berkeley and, uh, well, a whole list here. And uh, she's been a recipient of the prestigious Romantic Times Book Reviews Career Achievement Award for series romantic fantasy and for contemporary romance. And uh, Laura's been on the show before. She's coming back today to talk about a brand new book in a brand new series. It's called Cooper's Charm. Laurie Foster, welcome. Hi, thank you. It's good to be here. Good to have you back here. And um, I think you probably had that award, your Lifetime Achievement Award, between the time we first spoke and now. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, well, so I've actually got two now, which is, kind of neat. I had one in um, um, category romance and then one in contemporary romance. So, Does that give you a, a, some sense of gratification, Laurie? To, uh, to... You know, it's always nice to be recognized, but um, I actually get a bigger kick out of uh, a particular reader who will write me and tell me that somehow my book made her load a little bit lighter, you know, people that are dealing with so much. And um, a good book can kind of take them away. And to me, that's the best flattery and the best uplift I think I can ever get. So I would never uh, turn down a nice award, but uh, (laughs) the reader comments mean so much more to me. Right. And you've got over 100 titles to your name, right? Yeah, it's crazy. I know. It is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I was watching a, a clip of you and you said, yeah, I get these people come and tell me all the time how busy they are. And it's like, yeah, you want to know busy? (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is true because I also do the um, annual event every year with uh, 500 people that show up for it's a combination reader, author, charity type event. and, And it's just loads of fun. But I handle all of the setup and everything on that myself. And so that is just a super busy year-round uh, effort. But last year we donated, uh, because of the raffles we had and the different sponsors that were there, we donated over $28,000 to the No-Kill Animal Shelter. So it's really worthwhile, Right. but uh, lots of time involved. Yeah, that's, all, that's awesome. I also um, heard that you write novellas and donate those to, to charity, to the No-Kill Shelters, too. I do. Once a year, once yeah. a year, I do a ben- what I call a benefit book where uh, the contract is written so that the advance and all royalties for the life of the book just go directly to the charity. And um, so far, all of my books are still living, meaning they're still earning. Mm-hmm. So all of those places are still getting routine checks. That's awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So so let's look at this uh, this new book. It's the first in a, a summer resort series. Tell us what, what that's about. The, the summer resort series? Well, it'll so far as I know right now, because I'm sort of a seat-of-my-pants writer, so I don't really plan super far in advance. So as I know right now, there's definitely two books. There may be a third. I'm just not sure yet. But uh, it's based around uh, an RV resort. 
And I did that because I always had such a great time. Before my husband and I bought our lake house, we had a we still have an RV, but it's a much smaller, basically just used for traveling with a potty on board now. But uh, it right. <laughs> we used to actually stay in it a lot, and we had a much bigger one. And there was a particular RV resort that I loved to go to. Uh, it was like a vacation away, but with every amenity you could ever imagine. And lots of fun and the nicest people in the world. And it just always struck me how much fun we had when we were there. I actually feel like we need to go back. Uh, you know, people come by in their golf carts and everyone's friendly and kids are actually outside playing instead of cooped up in the house and on their uh, devices. And uh, there's activities planned and, and uh, scuba diving, which I have in the book, in a great big lake. And then there's a creek and there's woods you can walk through and you can find a remote spot to park your RV, or you can be in the thick of things if you want. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I just love the area, and it just always seemed very close and friendly. So it seemed like a really good place to uh, set a book for someone who needed to go and heal a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And so this this the story itself, how did the idea for Cooper's Charm come to you? Because this is the first in the series. For this particular book, I... I draw a lot of inspiration from headlines. I'm always appalled by the things that people have to go through and things that happen to them. And I had seen this woman uh, that was robbed and was having a very difficult, she was very, very brave, not at all like the, the character that I wrote in the story, the, the circumstances were different, but it made me wonder how someone gets beyond that when you've been robbed and someone's manhandled you somewhat and threatened your life. That would have lasting effects, I would think. And So I wanted to write a character who was a very strong, all of my characters, I try to write strong characters, but as strong as someone can be, things are still going to affect us. You know, we're not invulnerable. Things happen that that can have an impact. And so I wanted to be able to show how this strong woman would possibly reclaim herself, refine her own strength to get back to the person she wants to be after going through something that horrible in the RV resort where you can sort of be alone but in a crowd. Right. Seem like a, a good setting for that. Right, right. And so you said you're not, uh, you're a, uh, you write by the seat of your pants, if you will. <laughs> very much, very much so, yes. So tell us the benefits of that for you and, and the drawbacks of that for you, because everybody's got their own way of doing things. But obviously that's the way you like to work. But what are the benefits and the, and the drawbacks of that for you? Well, the benefit is that I uh, am an extremely prolific writer because I somewhat entertain myself by writing. It's you know, like reading a book. I have to <laughs> write it so I can see what's going to happen. And I'm never quite sure the characters forever take me by surprise. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be thinking this particular thing is going to happen, and then they completely do something different. And uh, that's always a lot of fun. Now, the drawback is that a lot of times my publisher is ahead of me and they're wanting to do back cover copy and cover art and uh, send things out to the book promotion places, and I don't really know what's happening yet. So it has happened on occasion where I'll try to fake it and say, well, I think this and this and this is going to happen, and they end up having to redo the back cover copy because it's not as close as I had hoped it would be. Right. But uh, I I very much, I I don't believe in writer's block. Whenever I get stuck, it's because... I'm trying to do what I want the characters to do instead of letting the characters do what they want to do. Oh, and the minute I catch that and realize it, it all just flows again and I have no problem writing. Mm. I've heard you talk a couple of times where you say you're, you're a very early riser for one. You get up, do emails, and then you come, come do your playtime, which is your writing. You don't view it as work. 
That's exactly it. Yeah, I, I very much uh, through a lot of different things. Uh, when my mother passed away with cancer, she, she lived with me, and in and around caring for her, my getaway time was to get to go write, was to sit down and work on my book. Again, for me, it's a lot like reading. Now, I'm not comfortable sitting at my desk 24-7, so I do read an awful lot also. But it's, it's the same effect as, as reading a book. I sit down and I write, and it's my getaway. And um, so, you know, different angsty things that maybe happen in life, different wonderful things that happen in life, I sort of celebrate it all by writing. Yeah, and you have a very large family too, don't you? So I know that there are ups and downs with family life, So, but you still keep going. <laughs> you still keep going. Well, you always think when your kids are young, uh, you know, that that's the busiest time. Right. And I swear, I think when they were young and I could give them a bedtime and <laughs> I knew exactly where they were at any given moment was so much easier than, you know, I have one son that runs, he's actually a writer now too. He writes under Daisy Foster, but he lived in South Korea for eight years. Uh, there, He and his wife and my little grandbaby are moved back home now, but, uh, you know, you can imagine I constantly worried you know, mm-hmm. so right. it's, uh, and then I, you know, I have sisters and a brother and extended family and we're all pretty close. So, uh, you love them and you worry for them and you try to visit and you make time and, you know, it, 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 it is, uh, it is very involved. Right. Right. So, um, I, I heard you talk on this and I want to just address it because I, I loved your take on it because there's, it doesn't matter what industry you work in. There's always petty jealousy. There's always rivalry with certain people. Uh, some people are very competitive and backstabbing. And um, recently there was, a, I, I don't want to give it oxygen. I think it had <laughs> quite enough. But there was an incident on social media where everybody was getting their knickers in a twist over somebody copywriting a specific word that, yes. <laughs> that, that she'd used in her book, which I think was utterly ridiculous. But um, so, so, but you said when jealousy rears its ugly head, you, you have a, a really great approach to that. I wonder if you'd share your outlook with us on that. Well, for me, I feel like any time an author succeeds, there are so many authors that do so much better in the industry than I do. And to me, it's forging a path for everyone. It's, uh, you know, they're showing you what can be done so that you can see a way forward. I, I know there are things that I managed to do that people in the industry thought couldn't be done. And I did it, and I was super proud, and I couldn't wait to share how I had done it with other authors in the hopes that they could figure that path out for themselves. I, I don't I think we're supposed to celebrate each other and be happy for each other and you can want what someone else has um, because I, I think we all do I would love to hit number one on the New York Times someday that's never going to happen I would have loved to have done that but I don't uh, regret that other authors did it I think it it showed the industry in a better light there right. here are these romance authors who are doing extremely well and it just it makes the entire industry look better. Right. And the, the, the situation that you were talking about, I was very divided on that because I, I was very unhappy about the author who wasn't just being supportive, who, who was causing this nitpicky thing. But I was also extremely upset by the way the mob mentality that seemed to pull together, right. who didn't just say, you shouldn't be doing this. They were vile language and you should be dead and we mm-hmm. should hang you from a tree and just terrible, terrible things that no one should ever say to another person. Yeah. You know, my feeling is that sometimes people are misguided. And uh, I was Martin Luther King. I'm going to butcher this thing, but you can't 
fight hate with hate, you, you have to fight hate with love. And I, I believe the same thing. You have to be positive to fight negativity, not more negative. I agree. I totally agree. Um, so we're almost at the end of our segment here. But two quick questions, if I can get these in super quick. What's the best tip you can give on promoting yourself and your work? What What's works for what? you? The best tip you can give on promoting yourself and your work. What works best for you, Laurie Foster? Uh, well, for me, it's me being me. I mean, I, I very much, I interact with my readers a lot. I try to tell them as often as I can how much I appreciate them because I do appreciate them so you much. You have a lot of... ever, ever, ever want them to think I take it for granted, right. that they're going to buy the next book. I know there's going to be a book someday that they won't want. <laughs> and so it, as long as they're still wanting them, I want them to know how grateful I am for that. And I want to give back. I think by giving back to, to the industry, by giving back to the community, by giving back to uh, readers, you're paying it forward, and it's a goodwill gesture, and I believe very much in karma. Right. What, and what's the, what's the least favorite part of the publishing process for you? I'm, I'm not a big fan of uh, having to reread my own work, which you have to do a lot when you're publishing. Right. And you want to try to catch every small typo there might be, and you still know that one or two is going to get through because after you've read that book so many times, even though an editor's read it and a copy editor's read it and a line editor's read it, you know, and, and a proofreader's read it, there's going to be a little something that gets through there. Right. That drives me nuts. Right. You know, I'm sort of a perfectionist, and I hate when those little things get through there. But yeah. I also cut myself some slack. I know I'm human. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So I know listeners can find out more about you at lauriefoster.com. The book is called Cooper's Charm. What do you want them to take away uh, from today's conversation from your book? Oh, you know, all I ever want is to entertain. I don't ever want to try and teach readers anything. That's not my, my job. Uh, I would like for them to um, see that love is an awesome thing, that we should be gentle with each other. We should be supportive of each other. We should pull ourselves up and do the best that we can. And, uh, and I hope that they're entertained. And we need more of you, Laurie Foster. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I yeah. appreciate that. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. We're right at the end of our segment. So listeners can find us at conversationslive.net, 800-495-7617. We'll see you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425-269-4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425-269-4772. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Laughter can help heal illness, emotions, and relationships. Jeopardy! champion and New York Times bestselling author Ken Jennings joins us to share a peek into the history of humor with Planet Funny. We'll also look at how to develop the right idea at the right time and the science behind creativity and the creative curve with Alan Gannett. Catch up on past shows at conversationslive.net and chat with Vicki on Twitter at Vicki St. Clair. Be sure to tune in every Monday at noon and Fridays at 6 a.m.